You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Thank you for joining us today on Leaders and Legends. We're with Mark Miles, who is certainly on the Mount Rushmore of people in the history of the city in the last 50 years who has contributed to its growth and its prominence. And we tend to focus a lot on elected officials and deservedly so. But for the folks who didn't put their name on the ballot box, uh, Mark Miles is certainly at the very top. Thank you, Mark. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. It reminds me that legend doesn't necessarily mean fact, but uh, (laughs) we'll see if we argue with each other as this progresses. We're joined today also by our co-host, Danielle Shockey, who's the CEO of the Girl Scouts. Good to be here. Thanks again for letting us be a part of the show, Robert. Danielle, why don't you kick it off? Wow. Okay. I've never got to kick it off before. This must be a special a special moment. <laughs> um, so the tradition of the Holman family and the organization for which you work um, is so just, you know, synonymous with Indianapolis. Um, so I'm kind of curious, beyond racing, what else are you involved with with the Holman organization that also is a passion for you? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm so focused with my business time on trying to grow our business mm-hmm. and uh, especially here in Indianapolis, reach more fans and have more community engagement that less than I used to be. I, I was probably personally much more directly involved with various community things uh, before I came here. Um, we, um, we have tried to take kind of the sports corp approach to engaging other organizations and working with them in the promotion of May and whatever, wherever else that takes us. So as such, we've worked with the Humanities Council, the Arts Council, all the, the organizations that are part of the fabric of particularly the urban part of da- you know downtown, like Visit Indy and whatever we call uh, uh, IDI today. And downtown Indy Inc. Downtown Indy Inc., yeah. And the airport and all those great organizations. So that gets us in a lot of things. Personally, we still stay involved in the other sports things. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about the upcoming uh, sports schedule, 21-22, and the amazing array of events that that are approaching, which to me is a whole story in and of itself and how that happened, we're still very involved. We're involved with the fundraising to try to make sure that all those host committees and organizations have, have plenty of money. I'm also involved with the Mind Trust. Um, something I've cared passionately about since uh, for a while, but I got engaged when I moved back to Indianapolis at the beginning of 2006 um, and care deeply about their work um, and, you know, a few other organizations. So um, there's just never enough time. I've had Ryan Vaughn on the podcast, uh, who's president of the Sports Corp. And we've had uh, Sherry Seiwert, on the podcast, who's president of Downtown Indy Inc. So if you want to hear what these two leaders had to say about what Mark just alluded to, 
uh, please check our website and those podcasts are on there. And also finally, uh, David Harris, former CEO, president of the Mind Trust, has agreed to come on to talk about education and opportunity. So look forward to that podcast soon. Sorry, Danielle. That's a great commercial. Um, no, what you just said actually led into another question I had, which is strategy, right? So you named all these different organizations who really have to be working in tandem for things like all these big events that are coming to our city. Has it always been that way? When you think back to early Indianapolis, Hoosier Dome, Colts, Court, you know, did it always have that collaborative spirit or is it just now much more strategic and we can feel it as a city and we see it in our legislature? Um, how does this? So, it's another history. great question. So happily, I can't claim to know always. That goes back a while. Um, I often think about a, a, a frame of time reference from when I graduated from high school here in 1971 and where the city was then and what's happened since then. And if I think about the people side of that, the, the social collaborative side of that, um, the answer is almost yes. To my knowledge, it's pretty much yes. We've had just very rare uh, internecine um, conflict between people and organizations. The community's great strength is the way people pull together. So for me, I go back and others won't pin things to this, um, but I told Robert this once not too long ago. Penrod was enormously important. So founded in the 60s by people who had come back from school. Most of them, maybe it was Bloomington or West Lafayette, but for many it was on the East Coast or the West Coast. They were going to make their lives here. Nobody asked them to create Penrod. Nobody elected them to do it. But a bunch of, it was politically incorrect, a bunch of guys who knew each other, most of whom were frankly from pretty affluent backgrounds, and they cared about the then emerging Museum of Art. And they thought, well, we can help with that. And they put together an organization. They didn't hire any staff and still haven't. And um, they figured out that uh, they could pull off amazing things by just taking initiative and reaching out to others to add to the effort. So, And then they went on and broadened their the folks they connected with to create many of the initiatives that um, – that we've seen develop in such important ways since since back then. But for me personally, I first saw it with a national sports festival in 1982, um, where it really was the first multi-sport event. It was the first introduction of um, many of the new then new sports venues. But it was the sports corporations, the then new Indiana Sports Corporation's first chance to develop the special sauce, which is collaboration. And, you know, they – they and, and we tried to take it to another level with the Pan American Games, 85 to 87. But it, it didn't occur to most cities to involve their arts community and their humanities community and um, and to be so committed to a strategy of bringing volunteers in both to manage and staff an organization and to – have as one of the principles um, the the firm thought that this can't be a success unless we do our damnedest to get everybody in town involved, whether that's individually or organizationally. So it goes back a long way, maybe not to always, but that's the way it's always been for me, and that's what I've seen and tried to 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 uh, really expand upon. And I and I don't think there's another city anywhere that does it like we do. 
and I, we, we, we met with Alison Melangdon recently, and that's not yet released, but she kind of talked about that same aspect being the secret sauce and even our Super Bowl bid, that the idea that we brought so many perspectives to our proposal, and you just touched upon it, the volunteers, the people, the spirit of our state. And so it sounds to me like you're saying our state is a little bit unusually special. Well, you know, these aren't acts of God. It was just that that's the way we learned to do these things, and they were so remarkably – that's how we overachieved. So you mentioned the Super Bowl and specifically the bid. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody else mailed their bids, which has to be – they had to be delivered to the team owners. And maybe Allison told you the story, but we're trying to figure out how to do that. And the idea um, surfaced – maybe we could get kids who are – who will be, I think we thought, seniors in high school for the game, whatever it was, four years later. And so they were pretty much eighth graders, to, and most of whom had never been on a plane and left the city to get you know, through a lottery to pick a team and to deliver the bids. It was phenomenal. And we still see those kids today uh, much later and further down uh, the line in their lives. And that's it, not a big deal. It's just an example of the thought process was – the more involved, the better, and the more um, the more we're involving people and organizations that that might not necessarily be involved, the better. So yeah, it's the way we all have tried to think about this for a long time. Like many folks who have made their mark in Indianapolis and throughout the state, you have a political background. Uh, of course, that warms my heart as someone who used to sit in his office and. Uh, listen to Mayor Greg Ballard uh, stride in and say, everybody leave. I got to talk to my political hack. Uh, (laughs) I took it as a compliment. He did not mean it as a compliment. Uh, You've had the great fortune to work for and with some historically legendary elected officials. Your first political job out of out of Wabash was working for whom? Uh, Dick Luger, who was mayor in running for uh, the U.S. Senate. And your boss was? Mitch Daniels. What was that like in 74? It led to your work, and correct me if I'm wrong, for Hudnut. I believe you ran Hudnut's campaign, his reelect in 79. And then you ran Dan Quayle's campaign in 1980 in the historic upset of Birch Bay in the Senate race. Maybe just those three quickly, some of your reminiscences. Well, I was always interested in campaigns and in politics. And and I have to say, I think as a young kid, impressionable young kid, um, everything that happened around John Kennedy's campaign and then, uh, you know, after he was assassinated was was this awakening, I think, for many people my age. Um, But so early on, I, I went to school 70 in Indianapolis at 46th and Central. I, I thought I was a Republican. No, I thought I was a Democrat at that stage because my parents were Republicans. This is, you know. That's <laughs> good, late 60s. Yeah. Uh, I was very young. And a friend and I would get on um, what's now Indigo and go down to Birch Bayes headquarters. He was running for the Senate uh, in his first campaign in stuff envelopes. So he ran in 62. He won again in 68. And then he won again, obviously, in 74. Yeah. So this was 60, I don't know, two must have been 60 I don't know one of the, one of I thought it was his first campaign but you know why I was on a bus to go down and stuff envelopes at that age I have no idea make there your was, parents mad 
I don't. I don't even know if they knew, to be frank. <laughs> so then, now that's a different era. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, public transportation worked for us anyway. Um, so the summer of '74, I was still in school. I had a summer job that was killing me because it was boring, and I was at home whining to my older sister and one of her good friends, and her good friend's name is Deborah Daniels, um, who was just Marsha's friend. And she said, well, if you're so bored, why don't you go see my brother? I'm sure he'll give you something to do. So I got into the campaign. And you're and, a North Central grad. Mitch yeah. Daniels is a North Central yeah, grad. Yeah, but happily, he was a whole generation ahead of me. We didn't overlap. <laughs> uh, so we'd never met. And Debbie set it up, and um, I said, look, if you give me something interesting to do, you don't have to pay me. I, I can work for nothing. Um, I can live at home. I can teach tennis lessons on the side and make enough money to pay my share of the tuition. So long story short, yes, he did, and I'll spare you the details. But um, what, what that did – and then I stayed, by the way. I, you know, School starts again before campaigns end, but I stuck it out to the end of November and missed a whole other semester and had to make all that up. But it was the most amazing environment for me because you're around all these incredibly gifted, highly motivated people. You learn about, you know, sleep not mattering and that everything is time intensive. Basically, in a campaign, you start on one day and you have nothing. In those days, you didn't have a post office box. There wasn't a URL um, or another employee. And you know on some date certain that's in November, you're going to know how you did. So really intense, really fun. And in campaigns, at least in those days, kids who had, you know, we, we got to had more responsibility than we had any right to ever hope to have. So it was absolutely the best kind of development opportunity I could have had, but I didn't think of it that way. It was just a fun thing to do. You mentioned being a Democrat, but 1974 wasn't exactly the uh, halcyon days of the Republican Party as Nixon resigned in August of 74 and then. Republicans nationwide got shellacked in those November elections, but Luger's margin was close. He didn't lose by much. What made you stay as a Republican or then stay in politics? Because just a few years later, here you are running a winning campaign as part of Hudnut's four terms. Yeah. Well, I think in the first one, I, I don't remember how old I was, maybe single digits. And it was just uh, Birch Bayh was young and attractive and he had a great jingle and that was a cool, attractive thing. It wasn't about uh, whether I was an R or a D, although if I had a point of view, it was probably that since my Republicans, since my parents were R's, I was probably going to be a D. But by the time I was well into college, I had a political point of view, a, a public policy perspective, and I was a Republican, a confirmed Republican, and have been since. So that campaign was great. I got to do all kinds of things. I actually then worked on a number of campaigns, two of which were unsuccessful. Um, and then consulted on a bunch of campaigns before uh, having the chance to be the campaign manager for Bill Hudnut's first reelection campaign in 1979 in the Republican City County Council races. And then Dan Quayle's 80 campaign, which was the last for me. So in 1980, um, just a mere six years later, uh, the reversal of fortune between the parties and politics, especially nationally, was complete in the sense that Reagan won 489 electoral votes. The Republicans took back the Senate. And one of the key victories in that Senate takeover included uh, Dan Quayle, little known, I would say, congressman, 
who uh, took on an enormously popular sitting United States senator. What made you think you could win that election? And how did you feel after you, your candidate had won that election? First, just on a personal level, which is, of course, irrelevant, um, there was this irony that I that first campaign, stuffing envelopes, was four by. The next one, I think the next one for Luger, got beat by by. And then in 80, we retired him. So sort of bizarre uh, cycle. <laughs> but um, I, I don't even know if I really believed we'd win or could win. I loved campaigns. And I loved winning. And Dan was an incredibly attractive candidate. Um, and we thought we had a shot. Um, and I think Dan might tell you that, um, you know, he was an incumbent member of Congress from the 4th District, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He'd been in two terms. Here's, here's his history at that point. And people today kind of forget. He ran the first time in, a, in an 18-year Democrat seat. It was no, no Republican in the right mind was going to run, but Dan ran and beat this uh, incumbent. And then in his first re-election campaign, set a record plurality for either party in re-election. So now back to 1980, um, you know, Dr. Bowen, the governor, was supposed to run but decided not to. It was it looked like a real long shot. Bowen run for Senate. He was supposed he was to term run for limited, the Senate. Correct. Yeah. And he decided he didn't want to do it. So Dan, again, takes on the impossible and says, well, I'll do it. And frankly... There was a primary opponent, but Dan was the credible candidate. And um, and we won that race, I think, because Dan was a great candidate, because it's primarily a conservative Republican state, and because uh, Bai had been in too long and was much more liberal than the state at that point, and because Ronald Reagan was an incredible candidate and, and made such a difference uh, in, in Indiana. But we win by, I think, like 49-51. And that's not a huge plurality. And then the next first re-election campaign, Dan sets a record plurality for any statewide race in the history of the state. It was over 60, as I recall. I think so. But I was not doing it then. But an incredibly, it just speaks to how, uh, what his political attractiveness was at the time. So for folks today who uh, remember some of the darker days of his vice presidency, and, and don't understand what a political star he was, at least in Indiana, they missed the point of the time. Let me ask you about that and then turn it back over to Danielle. In 1980, 1986, he beats Jill Long Thompson, or it might have just been Jill Long at the time. He gets over 60% of the vote, a, a real complete reversal from 80 in the sense of it's not a complete reversal, but there's no razor thin margin here. It's secretariat in the 73 Belmont, right? Nobody else is in the picture. 1988, he gets chosen as vice president by George H.W. Bush and a little bit of a surprise, I would say, a dark horse, but chosen for some solid reasons. Young, good looking, conservative, good family, uh, comes from an important state. What was your reaction, maybe starting in 88 through the vice presidency to this guy who you knew well, thought was smart, thought was attractive in the sense that he appealed to the voters and where he just absolutely gets skinned alive by a hostile media in concert with their uh, with their allies. Is that just tough to see? Yeah, it was. Um, first of all, I think I had a. I, I, it was a shock to me too that he was he was asked to be the nominee. 
I think part of that was that Bob Teeter, who ran market opinion research, who had become Bush's, uh, I think, chief of staff at one point, certainly a principal political consultant, had done all of our polling and for the state at that time and uh, everything Dan had been done for Dan. So he knew him. He knew all these facts. He understood how Dan resonated with young people, et cetera. And, and I think that was a big part of, uh, of uh, President Bush's thinking about Dan. Um, so nevertheless, I was, I was working at Eli Lilly in public affairs. I remember my wife called me and said, you're not going to believe this. You know, remember what happened? The paddle wheel steamer pulled up in New Orleans and the president or the nominee is on it. And Dan Quayle gets up on the stage and didn't do very well. Why? He was a little, he was a little hyper. Yeah. But what, here's what happened. So uh, Bush was determined for it to be a surprise and he was going to tell nobody but Jimmy Baker. And Dan gets a call as he's with his wife, Marilyn, in, a, in, the, in New Orleans that day having lunch. And his beeper goes off. And it's them saying, we're going to ask you to be the nominee. But if anybody finds out about it between now and then, it's not too late to change our mind. Don't tell anybody. So Dan <laughs> says, well, I'm paraphrasing. But basically, as I understand it, says, well, I'm with my wife. Well, OK, you can tell Marilyn. And I'm I going to have to get some – if I drive up – because you're asking me to go to the back of the crowd and wade through the crowd. I'm going to need a ride to get to the dock. So can I tell a staffer? And he does. Now, now he's dumped out. And I don't know. Maybe there's 10,000 people between him and the stage that the boat's coming up to. He barely gets through the crowd. No help. Is waving from the, f- the first rows, gets Secret <laughs> Service's attention, and they finally get him up there. And that's his preparation. So now there's a mic in his face, and he just found out he's going to be the Republican nominee for vice president, and he probably was a little shrill, probably a little <laughs> excited. And then the next thing that happened, again, this is an oversimplification, through all those successful campaigns and all those years of public service, I don't believe Dan was ever asked about how he ended up in the Reserve, the National Guard. And first news conference – no prep, that question. And he didn't remember. I mean, he probably had some general recollection, but you don't want to say anything that's not quite accurate. And the media found this picture of him that looked like he was had his glasses on, remember, and he had his, his cap up. up. He, looked, he looked like he didn't belong there. And yeah. Kind of reinforced that image. But that moment, he was a deer in the headlights, and it's hard to recover. And the first few days on the trail, you know, he was just getting bludgeoned. Largely around that, but also the fact that the, the stage hadn't been set for him. So, yeah, he got a bum rap. And um, I've, I felt for a while knowing him that, like, he kind of had the yips. You know, he'd lost a lot of self-confidence, a lot of his own appeal that he had all, over all these years. And who wouldn't? But he's got it back. And uh, I'm sure he wouldn't trade the experience um, looking backwards for anything. You're listening to Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. Our title sponsor is the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. We have the CEO, Danielle Shockey, with us today, along with Mark Miles, CEO of Holman Group. Company, yep. Danielle, go ahead. So that was fascinating. And I think you joked, Robert, that you were a political hack. 
but it sounds like you've been a you know political strategist and admirer for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, Mark is a strategist and a tactician and a leader. Yeah, and I'm you're the hack. hack. <laughs> no, but um, my question was going to be just listening to all of that fascination and everything you've watched, and even now that you're not in politics per se, what's been the most surprising campaign in your lifetime that you just were shocked to see happen? Whether I was in it or not. Whether you were in it or I not. I would say the most recent presidential campaign. Um, not that there's any original thought around that, but um, well, I don't know how much I want to elaborate. But in so many ways, the Republican primary was, you know, like reality TV. It was just bizarre. And um, pun intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, all of the many of the traditional mores and the way you um, treat people, what respect means, tone. Where you, where you, what issues you go into and how you approach them was basically thrown out the window and worked. Um, if, if I'd been asked to bet on who was going to be the Republican nominee, like so many others early days, I, I would have lost whatever we bet for sure. So that campaign was, um, without question, the most, uh, unpredictable, unexpected, extraordinary from my perspective. Danielle, may I ask a quick question? Absolutely. Who was the person who called you on the phone and said, uh, Greg Ballard just beat Bart Peterson? And what do you think of that night? Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, you know, I was probably watching it, but it was certainly a surprise. And, you know, I had only met um, Greg Ballard, who I have enormous affection and, and respect for, one time during the campaign um, prior to him being elected. And then... I think that week, like after the Tuesday, I was with him a couple times to uh, respond to his call for maybe some help. And then we developed a great relationship, and I have enormous admiration. I don't remember who first said the accidental mayor. Uh, and uh, That's Jim Shella, who, coincidentally, was a guest on the Leaders and Legends <laughs> podcast, in case you want to look it up. Well, you know, I don't think Dan or anybody else could argue with that. I mean, Dan says he knew all along and he was going to win. Uh, Dan, I mean, Greg. Mm -hmm. um, but he couldn't have known. I mean, there was, there was a ridiculous idea in, in a sense. But Well, Greg Ballard, who was a guest on the Leaders and Legends <laughs> podcast, said that he thought two weeks out he was going to win. That's what he said. He thought two weeks out. And I was working the election coverage at Channel 8 that night with Jim Shella. Toby McClamrock, Susan Williams, and none of us thought he was going to win until it just became. Yeah, it seems so unlikely. And in a way, at that moment in time, with respect to Greg, it was anybody but the incumbent. You know, that folks had had it and were mad. And I'd never seen that happen like that before. So, a, a, and the a mayor real acknowledged surprise. that, as I recall, he, he clearly gets it better now than he did when I was working for yeah. him. You know. Well, you know, these are political and personal things too. And the kind of mayor he turned out to be was extraordinary. And um, that was a lot of on-the-job development. He, he really was maybe um, ethically and in terms of his own personal courage and, and the like equipped, but otherwise pretty much unequipped. And he'll be, be the first to tell you, and will we'll say it with pride, uh, it's a lot of it was his staff and the people who came to work for him who are now running the Sports Corp, running the Indiana Civil Rights Commission, running the Greater Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce, running the Mind Trust. You know, it's goes true. On and on. He, but he, he, I tell people all the time, you want to get on Greg Ballard's good side, 
compliment him on the people who worked for him because then he's putty in your hands. And that that is tr- absolutely true. And yet, I don't know what I would have thought would have been the the level of folks he would hire as mayor. I I don't know what I would have thought would have been the caliber of person that would aspire to go work for him. And, and the other and, thing to consider is there are already a lot of really talented sort of Republican leaning public officials right down the street working for Mitch Daniels. So it wasn't like he had access to, you know, everyone in in the pool. There were already amazingly talented people working in the Daniels administration, but there were people like me who quite frankly and Jason Dudich and David Reynolds and the list goes on and on who just simply never thought they would have an opportunity to work for a Republican mayor of Indianapolis, like that the mayor's office was gone for a generation or more. Yeah. And that was one of the things that led a lot of us to to go work for him, besides him. Well, for sure, it's, it was one of the great strengths of his his tenure. But again, didn't have to happen that way. And it was it is a credit to him that it did. So you mentioned the mind trust in your kind of your introduction answer. So education and the city and innovation must be important to you. So I'm curious, what do you think about the change in the appointment versus the election of the state superintendent position? You know, I, I don't follow it that closely. Um, most of my life, I've thought that um, the Indianapolis Public School District should be run by the mayor. And similarly, uh, it would follow that the superintendent should be appointed by the governor. And and that's not because of who anybody is. It's because to me, there's nothing more important than our educational system. And you got to have accountability. And, you know, I don't even know the number of people that vote in the school board elections, but I'm pretty sure they don't know who they're voting for in most instances. And so um, it, it, like everything, it takes great leadership and somebody's got to be accountable. So, um, you know, you don't need a food fight between the governor and and the superintendent's office at the state level. Ultimately, people know who the governor is. They don't know who the superintendent is. And that's not about any particular governor or superintendent. Same way um, my inclination about the, the city was driven that way. It's all complicated. But um, ultimately, I, I don't think of it as politics. I think of it as what's the best way to run an organization. So tell us about your relationship with the Mind Trust. Why is that an important seat for you to hold for you? Well, the issue is so important. I mean, there's really, for me, nothing more important. I care mostly about Indianapolis and the urban setting in our community and don't care if I ever spent. Yeah, I know. But a lot of people would rather deal with the, you know, Capitol Hill and all that. For me, getting stuff done in the city and seeing the city grow and people better off is you can do it. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's real. And so, um, in all that at a human level and a, and a, um, city level, civic level, there just isn't anything anywhere. Whatever is second, most important is a distant second. Kids have no chance of leading fulfilling lives. If they've washed out of the educational system, before they're 16, if they can't read it at least third grade level by third grade and all those things that we know about. And I believed that um, in an urban setting, this is, um, this is a, my original, my, my view at the time of joining the Mind Trust, that there really was no good example of a public school district in an urban setting anywhere in the country. What does that tell you? It tells you the model's broken. To me, it's kind of like the post office was. 
we there was a lot of evidence that really talented, dedicated, committed leaders of schools could produce results. Not always. Some are not good enough. Some will fail. But generally speaking, they are people who will do whatever it takes to reach the kids they're responsible for. And I never saw that happen in a in a traditional district environment. We, When I got involved, I, I think I made three or four trips to New Orleans mm-hmm. after the storm where it was an act of God and they didn't have a district left. And so they had to innovate. And there was a huge influx of talent uh, and other things. Um, so I believe that it, it, it's so important and that basically you had to deconstruct a bureaucracy. It's not personal. It's not because we don't care about kids. It is public school from my perspective. But it, it isn't this simple. But my overall orientation was however much money we can afford to spend on education ought to follow the kid. And um, – if the school is good enough and we should be tough on schools and demand results, then I don't care what kind of school the kid goes to and what the brand of administration is, um, whether it's a charter or today an innovation school that didn't exist or a parochial school or a public school. Um, they ought to be able to go wherever they have the best opportunity. And for me, you know, I, I found a way to pay for it, but I'm, you know, it's just tragic that families could can't, and so they had to move, and then they ran out of places to move to to get their kids in good schools. And so it's just it it, f- it feels like there's nothing more important, and yet we, especially in Indianapolis and New Orleans, we're figuring out that you can make a difference. And the Mind Trust was the tip of the sword in doing that. And to your point, you said a few minutes ago, it it crosses political lines. It's all the same goal. The my history on the mind trust isn't isn't great, but it's founded by David Harris, who worked for Bart Peterson when he did education policy for Mayor Peterson. Now it's uh, the the director is Brandon Brown, who worked for Mayor Ballard, did education work for Mayor Ballard. So education seems to be one of the other areas, maybe like sports, like tourism, and other things, where the parties just come together or they don't matter. It's it's like minded people moving towards the same goal. And the reason I bring that up is because of another great example of that that happened a few decades ago, which keeps getting brought up in these Leaders and Legends podcast, and that is the importance of the Pan Am Games when it came to accelerating Indianapolis's role in the world and the view of Indianapolis from the rest of the world. You were the director, the CEO. The way Mayor Ballard told me was, Allison was Allison Melangdon was to you for the Super Bowl as you were to Ted Bohm for the Pan Am Games. That's true. And and Justice Bohm has agreed to come on the Leaders and Legends podcast. So we can't wait to talk to him. Anyway, <laughs> what was that like? And tell us a little bit, because Bill Benner was the one who first, uh, the former sports writer, talked about how important the Pan Am Games were as an accelerant for Indianapolis. Yeah, I think it was. I, I um, have already said in my mind, the uh, the birthday party was the sports festival before that, because the approach to organizing happened then for the first time, because those venues came forward in the first time, because we had a whole lot of national television coverage even then, and because 
we exceeded everybody's expectations, whether it was the U.S. Olympic Committee or the national governing bodies. It, it really was, for me, um, the start. Saying that, the Pan Am Games gets credit for that, in part because of scale. We ended up with 38,000 volunteers that were – we know they were uniformed and credentialed. We hope they were trained. Um, it, it, we, we sold a million tickets. There were 17 days of competition, if I remember all this correctly. And you know, all the countries of the Western Hemisphere, from Chile to Canada, participated. So we dealt with the world's uh, sports federations – it was international, which put us on another stage. And uh, in many ways, it was it, – it didn't seem to me to be different. It was bigger. Um, but and, and you, and you, uh, you developed a, uh, a new BFF who liked late-night meetings. Would you like to tell us who that is in conjunction oh. with Pain and Games? Yeah. Well, I've never thought of him as my BFF, but <laughs> if I'm breaking the code correctly, you're talking about Fidel Castro – which is a story that could go the length of the podcast, I suppose, because when we, we, we competed to get the right to host the games and um, the competition was Savannah, Cuba, and the meeting of the Pan American Sports Organization to decide this was in Mexico City. So we win. And the moment, as far as I know, that we announced or it was announced that Indianapolis got the right to host the 1987 Pan American Games, Castro announced his boycott. This was a big deal because it was the Cold War and many of the world's best athletes and the hemisphere's best athletes were from Cuba. So to not have them in, frankly, from many perspectives was just going to be a disaster. So in, in Olympic boycotts, uh, boycotts of sporting events were in vogue. The United States boycotted the Moscow Olympics in 80. Soviet Union boycotted the Los Angeles Olympics in 84. So yeah. It wasn't just an idle threat. Those were happening. Oh, no. It, it had it happened at the Olympic level, as you're saying, and it never occurred to us that this was just a threat. And I'll spare you the details, but over time, um, I was with others for two of the three occasions, invited to Cuba the first time. Well, anyway, and we spent three-plus hours on each of those three occasions with Castro. And they were all very different. The first time... It was to figure out if there was any way to get him out of the boycott. And I guess the one common denominator uh, in here in, in your question was that you never really knew for sure if you were going to have the meeting. And in the end, each time after midnight, there's a knock on your door at the Cuba Libra Hotel and you're, somebody says, you know, pull your pants on and, and get dressed for a high-level government or me meeting. So, yeah, I spent three um, – we are the morning kinds of meetings with him and they got back in and then uh, they competed successfully and they provided a lot of the great achievements for athletes and cultural aspects of the games. And then the third one was actually after the games. I went down there. I was asked to help make the pitch for the city to try to get the World Baseball Championship. And the World Baseball Federation was meeting in Havana. You know, okay, fine. I'm done. I'm leaving the next morning. It's 1230 at night, knock on the door. So I end up for a third time, this time just standing up in myself with him and his interpreter. And did he recognize you? Did he say, hey, Mark, good to see you again? <laughs> I don't know that that was the tone of voice, but um, 
you know, he at least had a most a recent enough briefing to know why somebody had me there. No, they were very different. The first time, I have to admit to um, being impressed by his charisma. You know, we we there were uh, I don't know four or five of us, and we were walked from a holding room again middle of the night around a corner, and and then you find yourself in his office, and he's standing there with the full uniform and the hat, the army fatigues. <laughs> and um, I was like the last one of our group, Ted, Sandy Knapp, General George Miller from the U.S. Olympic Committee, myself. And I'd read everything I could get my hands on. So when it comes my time, as we pass by him to shake his hand, he says, you're very young to be the president of the Pan American Games. And I said, actually, you were three months younger when you took Havana. And that just, that scored points, you know, he's like, ah, you're good. that's good. So, but then we sat down and um, basically he did almost all the talking for three hours and 20 minutes. Um, and eventually we learned that if certain things could be put into place, they would probably come back in and compete and it worked out. So did, if I have the chronology correct, did having to uh, deal with or cajole or Conversed with Castro, help you deal with John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors in your next gig as uh, director of the ATP, the tennis tour. What was that like dealing with those mega rich, Hall of Fame, bratty personalities? Well, my words, not yours. Yeah, thanks. Although you know, for some that that might that might be uh, inappropriate. Um. You know, whether it was different campaigns earlier where you, it might not have been a big personality, but it would be pressure situations or Pan Am game stuff. Um, um, I mean, I played tennis. I felt comfortable around tennis players. I knew their history. I know what it's like to compete. So it was pretty familiar territory. And um, I was learning in that context how to have stakeholders that, you you know, how aligned you can be with them is important, but there are also people that have to follow your rules and you have to enforce them. So that's a complicated set of dynamics that um, happen, you know, were relevant for 15 years of men's tennis and are now where we have great relationships with Roger Penske and Chip Ganassi and Michael Andretti and, and all the rest of the owners and the drivers. And yet if they, if there's a problem, we they, the hammer comes out, so to speak. So I, I I think I was kind of prepared for all that. The callus is built over the years, and um, there is a point at which you're not very intimidated by anything. I remember having a conversation with Mitch Daniels in this job where we were just getting beat up about something publicly. I don't remember what it was. I said, "Your current job is yeah." I really have. I can't. I've got no clue what the issue was. But I called Mitch and said, so, you know, you much more than I had days where you you were just getting killed, bludgeoned over some political issue, right or wrong. How do, how do you – give me some advice. How do you think about that? And he said, well, it's simple. They can't eat you. <laughs> <laughs> I think to myself, they can't eat me. <laughs> and so it's funny, right? But it's true. You know, you, you – you, in a job like this where you face difficult decisions and a bunch of people might care, you have to say, I'm going to be as prepared as possible and I'm going to make the best possible decision that I can, as well-informed as I can be. And then 
you know, it's we all are human and it's life. You, you know, we'll move on. And hopefully they won't eat me in the process. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. It's almost the month of May or when That's this is pun, released. Right? You, you picked the gear metaphor uh, yeah, on There purpose. you go. Absolutely. I'd like to say I was that intelligent and that witty, but I'm not. But I will switch gears to the month of May. And so the tradition, you know, um, do you have a favorite tradition? But then also as you try to think about moving just everything, the town of Speedway, the organization, the IMS, the, the race, um, is there a balance between tradition and new? And, and, and what is that for you? Yeah. The favorite bit for me, um, remember I was in Paris, France at the French Open for 15 years, leaving Roland Garros, the, tur- the tournament site, to go to a hotel to catch the 500 from France. And um, without a doubt, it was Jim Neighbors and back home again, Indiana. And still, that, that's a, it's a tough part of the show. Um, but it, but it all is the, all the pre-race is so special and so important to so many people. Taps. Yeah. Taps is big, but it all is right. I mean, it's just, it's my favorite. yeah, especially when they come right down the track yeah. and don't take a left and cut across the infield. But, um, yeah, the, the whole pre-race thing is what makes the 500 what it is, irrespective of what happens on the track. Cause the race has traditionally done such a terrific job of honoring Memorial Day. Well, it is Memorial Day. And the weekend, and, and it, they've never lost sight of that aspect of the event. Yeah. No, it's true. It's very patriotic. It's appropriately aimed at recognizing the service of so many folks. And so it, it's just another key element of why it's so special. So for me, it's, it's an alchemy. You know, what's tradition you can't touch, you don't, you don't want to touch, because it's part of what it is, the core, the DNA of the event, and where can you innovate? And, um, man, there's no playbook. When I came here, I remember sitting at this desk behind me on my first day when we were opening the gates, right? And it's the first weekend of the three weekends. It's practice, and the next weekend is time trials, and the third weekend is race weekend. And I couldn't be more stoked and there's 4,500 people out there on the opening weekend. And, uh, you know, you talk about a buzzkill. <laughs> so um, pretty quickly, we thought about the fact that there's a road course out there that was created for Formula One. Two-thirds of IndyCar's races are on street courses or road courses like the one we've got. What if we jumpstart May by having our own drivers – our own team owners, cars, car numbers that are the show on race weekend and kind of jumpstart May by having a real event, uh, a championship points race event. You would have thought I was proposing, you know, just turning off the lights and, and ending the 500 <laughs> internally. Back to the rear engine. Yeah. <laughs> or the front engine. Yeah. Um, but I, I just could not see why this could be anything but a success. I mean, it wasn't meant to rival the 500. It was meant to be the opening act to build to the 500 with our brand, our talent. And, uh, and we were for sure going to have more people out here than we were for practice. So, and it's efficient um, for the teams and all that. So um, it turned out that most of the fear about it was inside this building our offices where people just thought, well, that's not what we do in May. But that didn't feel like it was sacrosanct to me. Uh, 
we, you know, the key to that was I called Roger Penske, who talked to a lot of drivers and team owners. And I called Roger and said, we're going to do this after he'd, he'd already given me his view. And he said, well, fine, how can I help? I said, come help me announce it. And when Roger Penske stood there next to me and we said, we're going to do this, I didn't hear a lot more criticism about it because of his, uh, his gravitas for in our world. So that's an example, but there's, um, there's lots of them. We changed the way time trials work. Time trials doesn't – there's a lot of differences in the dynamics today versus however many years back you want to look. And now the format's different, and we just changed it again for this year. So that's the effort to always improve. And again, hardcore fans might think, well, you know, uh, leave it alone. It's not what it was, but I think – you know, you got to be right more than you're wrong. When you make changes, it's really helpful if they if it's pretty obvious right away that they were they were beneficial. Seems like one of the things that that your team has done, Doug Bowles, Alice Malangdon, and all the others, that's really captured a lot of the youth, including my son who's 18, who's become a complete gearhead. He just simply cannot wait for the month of May. Is all the things that happen beyond the race? I don't know if it was if it was. Your team or maybe the previous team changed carb day from Thursday to Friday. The concerts, you can't recapture, in a sense, the glory of the 60s, 70s, 80s snake pit, right? That's put to bed, (laughs) no pun intended, for uh, lots of reasons. But you can make the month of May more interesting, and you've done that. How gratified are you that, that the race has come back and that the month of May has come back? Well, we'd be suicidal and depressed if it hadn't improved. Um, but I, we don't feel like gratified because we're there. It, it, it's a constant effort, focused effort to try to keep growing and keep adding momentum and the like. But no, we're, you know, we get great feedback from Hoosiers all the time and that's very gratifying. Yeah, no, there's a lot to do. Um, in the same, I think my, after a year, we looked at race weekend. So here we are, and Friday's Carb Day, and there's a cool concert, and then everybody goes downtown for the parade, nothing on the track, and and then we have the race. And you've got everybody who who is coming to town is here. And what we do on Saturday is the parade. Come on. So why wouldn't we have a concert? And it, it's not a brilliant idea. The Final Four has music the whole weekend. So we created the Legends Day concert and brought in or brought along our great sponsored Firestone that sponsors that concert. And so now you've got three days of music with the 500 with Carb Day, which is traditionally sort of old rock foreigner this year. And then Legends Day, which is traditionally country, Zach Brown this year. Um, And then the Snake Pit. So I like to say for fun, you know, the old Snake Pit was kind of organic by which I don't mean healthy, <laughs> but I do mean it happened where it happened, right? And for you, you know, it was the first turn of the infield for most of those years, and it was ridiculously crazy. Um, Were you ever there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you my, my favorite snake pit story. It did not involve me personally. But just to, before I'll come back to it, we just decided that what if we put a fence around it and put it out in the third turn and made it an EDM festival? So that it's not organic anymore, it's organized. And it's frankly a commercial venture aimed at bringing kids out who probably wouldn't come because 
they were ready to watch the race. But maybe if they survive all that, they'll um, uh, they'll grow up and they'll want to be race fans, and and that's working really well. My favorite snake pit story was. I was with uh, Graham Ray Hall and A.J. Foyt, and he was with an old friend of his named Jimmy. And we were in Phoenix about to have a media event to announce we were going back to Phoenix for a race, and the trophy was the A.J. Foyt trophy. So I'm talking to Graham kind of in the green room before that starts, and I'm telling him, I can't believe it, but we just, at, we just expanded the snake pit, and we've sold 30,000 tickets. And Jimmy says, snake pit? I remember the snake pit. AJ, you remember the snake pit? You remember that year, 1964? You were winning the race, leading the race. And I was spotting for you in the snake pit in the first turn. And you came on the radio and you said, Jimmy, are you watching? Are you seeing this, what's in front of you? And and Jimmy said, I, I said, AJ, I, I, what are you talking about? I'm watching you. And he said, no, that girl in front of you, she's topless. And Jimmy said, uh, Oh, my God, you're right. AJ goes around a few more laps. He says, Jimmy, now you watching? Now she's naked. <laughs> I said to Graham, so today, could you pick that out in the crowd? He said, not a chance. It's, it's a blur. <laughs> Things have changed. You mentioned a, f- a few minutes ago about all, and, and so did um, Sherry Seiwert, so did Ryan Vaughn. Indianapolis is about to have an amazing run of events. National Football Championship, NCAA Final Four, Big Ten uh, Championship, uh, Big Ten Tournament coming back. But the 500 is still here. It never goes away. How do you make sure that besides having a phenomenal race, which which has happened consecutive years in a row, yeah. how do you make sure that the 500 and the Speedway doesn't get lost in that? <laughs> I've never had the slightest thought. That's the first time the idea of it getting lost has popped into my head. We're not going to get – this is so much a part of Hoosier's DNA and identity um, that it doesn't matter what else we do. This is theirs. This is our communities. And so many people feel that way. So we just have to be great stewards of it and um, innovate enough that there's always something new, something interesting, something better keep the traditions that are most fundamental to our fans and do more and more and more to reach out to include more people. So so I I really, I'm not the least bit worried about being lost among a a menu of phenomenal events that come here. The the challenge for us now, even if we have great name ID everywhere, hard to find somebody in the United States that hasn't heard of the 500 mile race and almost true internationally. But we got to make it more relevant to them. More, uh, we, we got to grab more of them and connect them to it, as we do locally, um, and, and cast our gaze and our reach more nationally. And that's a big opportunity that we're trying to pursue. I get my last question before your last question. All right. So, Girl Scouts, we serve twenty nine thousand girls in Central Indiana. We're much. Um, Similar to your beliefs on the mind trust conversation, right? That everybody deserves a great opportunity. We think that you can find that in Girl Scouts and other youth organizations. So my last question always has to be, if you had one bit of advice for a young girl in central Indiana who wants to be in sports, be in leadership, be in politics, what, what, what do they need to think about? What's, where should they spend their energies um, as they grow up? 
Well, I'm sure Girl Scouts is a good place to start. But you Great asked, answer, but you, what you, else? you have asked, asked about sports. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the same advice that I give anybody about anything civic. Just get in the game. Just get off the couch. Don't stay home. Do something. And this, it's not, it doesn't matter how, where you start as much as that you do. So it can be being an athlete, and I think they're phenomenal, hap, happily great opportunities for young girls and women to compete at the highest levels of sports. So if you want to compete, go compete. It can be get involved with an, an event, and Indianapolis is the best place in the world to grow up because we can use volunteers all the time, and we try to reach younger and involve as many people, I think, as you know, as possible. So it can be that side of it. Um, I, I just think there's no magic path. It's just just do it to steal it from Nike. And I think there's no better community to, to uh, where that's possible than here in Indianapolis. Well, we call it take action. So not quite the Nike branded recognition, but take action and make the world a better place is what our For goal adults, is. I call it get off the couch. There you go. Just, I like it. Just do something. Great. Well, the Borg Warner Trophy for best questions for this podcast goes to Danielle Shockey of the Girl Scouts. Terrific. Thank you, Danielle, for joining us. We end all Leaders and Legends podcasts with the same five questions, and we're here with Mark Miles. Are you ready? Uh, Yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat. (laughs) What was your first job? Baskin Robbins. No, actually, probably uh, delivering papers. I delivered for the Star and the News as a you know, as a grade schooler. What was your first concert? You know, I don't remember my first concert. But what I remember about a first concert was living on the path, the street, 46th Street, that the Beatles took to get to the fairgrounds for that, for their concert in whatever year that was. Again, I was in grade school. So it was a big deal to watch them drive by. But so you I'm, actually saw them? Yeah, I didn't see the concert, but I did see them on their way to the fairgrounds. That's a unique answer, one not to be topped. Well, unless we get John Gregg or uh, Mike McDaniel on the podcast, they were at the concert itself. Even better. Mike if, McDaniel went to the Beatles concert. That's a that, – there you go. <laughs> <laughs> if you could recommend one book for anyone to read, which book would you recommend? God, how can you pick a book for people to read? Um, like you, I, I any I like a lot of history. I would say anything Churchill, and um, and that can take you your whole life. So I, I I'll pass on one book, I suppose, without giving it more thought. But with the Churchill theme, I would recommend the Churchill Factor, written by Boris Johnson, who used to be mayor of London. It's absolutely it's kind of crazy. Great writer, though. But a great writer. (laughs) If you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Be there as Something that has happened. Something that has happened. Be there and see it in person. Yeah. So um, how about watching the founding fathers in Philadelphia trying to hammer it out and figure out how to make this country? In 76 or the Constitutional Convention? The Constitutional Convention. What about that appeals to you? Just the give and take, the camaraderie, the compromise? Yeah, I'm not sure there was a lot of camaraderie. There was probably some, but it, it just what it what it did. I mean, in the genius in the room and the results of that process, yeah, the, the, what, what it created is just un, unbelievable. And so 
to have seen the and I, you know I'm sure they're lionized in everything that's been written since, but but we do know what they wrote and what came out of the process, and so the bravery and the and the brilliance would be something to see. Last question: If you could have dinner with anyone in the world currently living, a couple hours to talk about anything off the record, whom would you choose? I'm gonna I'm gonna answer two questions. You asked the wrong one, but you asked it, so it's your mic. <laughs> the most interesting dinner I've ever had was with Nelson Mandela, um, and that was phenomenal. He, he was—I felt like I was with Gandhi. Just this serene, calm wisdom was phenomenal. Today, somebody— And that dinner—we oh, can't just gloss past that. What were the circumstances of that dinner? I mean, did you see him at the Steak and Shake? Like- yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little more. It's real a long quick. story, but in our tennis days, um, after he got out of jail, um, and international sport was starting to come back after the blacklist days because of apartheid, we had a communicate. A, a, we brought events back there, and then to top it off, after we had regular tournaments in South Africa, we created um, a. a, a we asked a bunch of uh, existing tennis players, including Andre Agassi and really top guys, if they'd go back and do a few exhibition events to raise money for the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. So we raised a bunch of money for him, and he was kind enough to acknowledge that. Today, who would I like to speak with? Um, George Will, because I just can't imagine how bright that guy is and his gift for language and his – I like the way – Largely, I think I I like where he's coming from politically, philosophically. Well, one of your best friends is one of his best friends. And uh, both George Will and Mitch Daniels have signed my copy of the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant. And it's amazing how much or how undervalued sometimes leadership is. I think it's the most undervalued quality that we have in the world. And the podcast is called Leaders and Legends, and we are sitting here with someone who personifies both. Mark Miles has had a hand in so many successes that we did not even mention his role in the Super Bowl during this podcast, which is a colossal failing for which I apologize to all of our listeners. Thank you, Mark, very much for joining us. Thank you, Danielle Shockey, CEO of the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Robert at veteranstrategies.com.